everyone. How are you doing this morning? Good. It is so good to be with you, and I love this intergenerational Sunday, don't you? So great having all of our kids with us today, and just a, a nice warm welcome to all of you who are visitors. Uh, you're not normally part of Central. Maybe you're here visiting friends and family. Long Thanksgiving weekend. I hope that you all had a great Thanksgiving, by the way. Uh, generally, following Thanksgiving, it's customary to make a couple of remarks, remarks about the Lions. Um, they won on Thanksgiving by 31. Yeah, the end times are officially upon us. Oh. <laughs> uh, well, hey, kids, for those of you who are with us today that aren't normally in here, kids, we are so grateful to have you here. And uh, for you parents who have kids, if you're like me, these days can be a little bit nerve-wracking. Like, you don't want your kids to be too loud, too boisterous during the service. So we're going to help you out real quick. So here's what I need. I need all of my kids in here. Let me see you. Raise your hand if you are 10 or under. Kids in here, 10 or under. Okay. Adults, if you want to do this as well, that's fine. But for my kids who are 10 and under, what I want to do is just help you to get a little bit of your energy. So I just want you to yell as loud as you can on three. Kids, you think you can do that? All right, here we go. On three, as loud as you can. One, two, three. Whoa. All right. All right, be quiet the rest of the time. No, just kidding. Kids, we are so grateful that you are part of the congregation, part of our community today. You are always part of our community. It's just great that you actually get to be in this room with us today. So, hey, we get to kick off our Christmas series today that will culminate with our Christmas experience on December 19th and 20th. And you'll learn more about that later. And that's always our Christmas experience is it's standalone experience, guests, friends, people who come aren't part of Central. They'll get it, they'll understand it. But if you've been here for the whole time, it's just going to have an extra layer of meaning to you once we get there because this is the foundation for this series that is entitled Refugee. And this is a series that Craig and I uh, put together months ago before this whole refugee crisis became, as we've been saying, a political football as it has been. And we just felt like this was all God's timing for us to be able to share the story of Christmas in its refugee reality. And it's absolutely explosive, and we're really excited to be able to really kick off this series and be able to launch into all of the events surrounding Christmas, the refugee reality that's all part of that. So um, here's what we're going to do is you're going to need a Bible for today's teaching. So if you do not have a copy of Scripture, maybe you forgot it, left in a hurry, whatever, our ushers are coming through the aisle right now. Throw your hands up in the air. And they'll be happy to get you a copy of Scripture. And then when we get to our first passage today, which will be in a little bit, the page number will be on the screen behind me. So, uh, and kids, I hope that you got a coloring page when you came in as well. So feel free to decorate that and enjoy that. But uh, before we get into a text this morning, I'd like to kick off this part of our teaching just by telling you a story. And the story begins in 1929 with a guy by the name of Jack Heisinger. Good Dutch name, isn't it? Heisinger. 1929, and born in Grand Rapids, good old Grand Rapids, Michigan. Three years after he was born, his family moved to Muskegon, where his dad, whose name is Jake, or his name is Jake, took on the pastorship of a Baptist church in Muskegon. And this is where Jack grew up. He grew up in Muskegon. Now, Jack will recount stories of coming with his father, Jake, to Holland 
to visit Jake's brother, Jack's uncle, who was a barber on 16th Street. It was really funny because after the first service, a guy came up to me and he said, I had a barber on 16th Street when I was a kid and his last name was Heisinga, same person, okay? Now, Jack will recount that when he came to Holland in the 30s, when he was just a young boy, he remembers it really well because Holland was the first place where he got to taste 7-Up for the first time. Now get this, in the 30s, here in Holland, 7-Up was being touted as a health drink. (laughs) So much so that from a medical perspective, you weren't supposed to take any more than like three swigs of an entire bottle. So Jack remembers getting a bottle with his dad and his uncle and Jack will say, I only had three swigs that day because it was a medical drink, a health drink that was being touted here in Holland. Now, fast forward to 1945. Jack Heisinger is now 16 years old, again in Muskegon, and gets a job at a local radio station. Now, he'll have a couple of jobs at radio stations in Muskegon. uh, And one, in fact, had his responsibility to come down during Tulip Time Festival and cover the parade. So he would come down, hang out on the third floor on 8th Street, and cover all the festivities around the Tulip Time Festival parade. But at this first radio job that he had, just a few days in, the owner showed up one day and said, Jack, we have a problem. Jack goes, what's the problem? He goes, you are creating quite a disturbance. And Jack goes, what are you talking about? The owner said, the Christian temperance union is up in arms that the son of a Baptist preacher is doing beer ads on the radio. Because everything was live at that time. And Jack goes, well, what what am I supposed to do? And the owner said, just change your name and they'll never know it's you. (laughs) And so before his next live broadcast, Jack took out a spiral notebook, tore out a piece of paper, put 30 names on there that he thought would be good last names. And then at the moment in the, the broadcast where he was to say, and this was broadcasted to you live by Jack, before he said his last name, he took a pencil, he spun the paper, closed his eyes, stabbed a name, and then took that name in that moment as his alias on the radio. Now, several years later, he would receive a radio job in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He was going to go back to his legal name, Jack Heisinger. The only problem was, is once he got to Fort Wayne, he found out there ain't no Dutch people in Fort Wayne. Nobody can say the name Heisinger. And so he reverted back to the alias he had in Muskegon. And when radio became television, had his own news program within NBC and a number of other events kind of arose, it just made more sense to legally change his name from Jack Heisinga to the name that he had when he had this job in Muskegon, Jack Gray. My grandpa. Yeah. I have on my father's side a Dutch heritage. And I now fully embrace that you ain't much if you ain't Dutch. (laughs) Now, I'm sure God loves other people as well, but maybe not as much as he loves the Dutch. I don't know. But that is part of my heritage on my grandpa's side. And by the way, I am blessed this morning to have my grandma, my grandpa, 
my mom, my dad, my aunt, my uncle, my brother, and we don't say sister-in-law in our family, we say sister-in-love are all joining us. They're up here in the front row. Can you just say a warm welcome to them this morning? So this is a particularly meaningful morning in that regard. When I grew up, I grew up in Adrian, Michigan, Southeast Michigan. I had never been to Grand Rapids, Holland, Muskegon, Saugatuck, Grand Haven before my college days. Now, when I was growing up, we would spend time in Empire, Sleeping Bear Dunes, Traverse City, and all of that. But I had never experienced the Dutch culture. And even when I went to college in Grand Rapids at Cornerstone, I never really got immersed into the Dutch culture until my wife and I moved here to Holland 10 years ago. And over the last 10 years, I've got to live in a Dutch culture. And I began to understand my Dutch heritage so much more and appreciate it so much more. I mean, since I have been here 10 years ago, I have been experiencing what Dutch, Dutch people experience. My nose has been growing because air is free and so Dutch have big noses, right? I mean, this is what the Dutch are like. Anything that's free, I'll take it. And so I've, I've been experiencing that since I've been here. I understand the Dutch heritage. I understand the Dutch culture. And I appreciate it so much more than when I never had any experience with it. And that's what I want us to center around is this idea that, that I have been reminded of in my own story. And it's this, that when you see your story in another's, you respond with greater empathy. Formerly, I didn't really care much about the Dutch culture until I came and became part of it, until I got to know the heritage, until I got to know the people. And now I have a greater empathy, I have a greater appreciation, I have a greater understanding because I now see how my story connects into that story. Heritage is very powerful. So much so that this is something Paul talks about in the biblical text, talking about the heritage of those who are followers of Jesus. And so I'd like to invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10. And this is where we're going to begin our biblical portion this morning. And many of you may not be familiar with 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, you have the first four gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you have Acts, Romans, and you have 1 Corinthians. It's written by a guy by the name of Paul whose ministry really gets underway after Jesus has died, resurrected, ascends back to heaven. Paul, who is a follower of Jesus, who's taking forth the message of the good news of the gospel, primarily into the Gentile world. And he writes a letter to the people in Corinth, known as Corinthians. And Corinth is only about an hour from Athens today in Greece. And Paul is writing to a community of Jesus followers who are both Jews and Gentiles. And this is what he writes, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm only going to read the first verse. It goes like this. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. Now the reference to the cloud and to the sea is to the Exodus story. When God brings Israel out of Egypt... God leads them with a cloud and God also takes them through the Red Sea. Paul is referencing the Exodus. But again, notice 
what he says to a Jewish and Gentile audience. Let me read it one more time. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. Paul says, our. Now this would make a ton of sense if we were dealing just with a Jewish audience. But we're not dealing with just a Jewish audience. We are dealing with a Jewish and Gentile audience. And the larger composite makeup would have been Gentiles. And Paul, who is a Jew, says to not only Jews, but also Gentiles, our ancestors. See what Paul just did in this moment? is that he no longer says, okay, the Jews can say, okay, that is our story because those are the Israelites. But now to the Gentiles who are followers of Jesus, their response isn't to be, well, that's somebody else's story. That's their story. Paul goes, guess what? It is now your story. It is your biblical heritage. Now, this is very key because when you start talking about this, it's helpful to make a distinction between heritage and history. History are just events that happened in the past. It just records what happened in the past. Heritage is events that happened in the past that shape who you are today. That's the difference between heritage and history. History can be very neutral or impersonal. Heritage is deeply personal. See, here's what happens oftentimes when we come to the biblical text is that we misread the biblical text or not necessarily misread the text. We think it as history rather than heritage. It's, it's the story isn't intended to be read as history to us, but as heritage. This isn't just something that happened to somebody else. Paul says, if you're a follower of Jesus, the Israelite story is your story. Those are your ancestors. This is your heritage. Now, Let's go back to that moment in the biblical text where everything really got underway. It's in the land of Canaan, you have at the end of Genesis, Jacob, who was a descendant of Abraham, a son of Isaac. He's the third patriarch in all of this. Jacob and his family have to leave the land of Canaan to go to Egypt because of what? May know why they have to leave Canaan? Famine, very good. They have to leave the land of Canaan to go to Egypt because of famine. Do you know what you call someone who has to leave their home country to go somewhere else due to famine or other natural disasters? It's the word refugee. They end up in Egypt. They are refugees. Now, Jacob's son, Joseph, who is second in command in Egypt at this time, provides for the people and they basically resettle in the land of Egypt in the Nile Delta region, and this now becomes their home. But then a pharaoh comes along who doesn't really care much about what happened prior to. He sees the Israelites as a threat. He enslaves the Israelites. He oppresses the Israelites. He murders the Israelites. And God works in a mighty way in order to get the Israelites out of Egypt and they flee into the desert. You know what you call someone who has to flee their home because of oppression or war or violence? It's a refugee. That the Israelite story is grounded in a refugee reality. And then God does something fascinating. They have to flee Egypt because of oppression, because of war. 
They are a refugee status. They come to Mount Sinai. And in Exodus 19, God says to the people, he says this, hey, I carried you on eagles' wings and I have brought you to myself. God says, you are at home with me. Yeah, I'm gonna give you another home back in the land of Canaan, the promised land. It's gonna be a little bit down the road because you're not gonna quite follow the program all that well for a bit. But God's whole thing at Sinai is say, you're now at home with me. But then interestingly, in the very next chapter in Exodus 20, God starts having an interesting conversation with the people. Come with me to Exodus chapter 20 and notice the conversation God is going to have with his people that he has just rescued and redeemed out of slavery. Because many of you know the story, right? They come to Mount Sinai. God says, hey, do you want to partner with me? Let me kind of use our language we've been saying, in the restoration of all things. And they're like, yes, we're in. We want to be in covenant with you. We want to partner with you. God goes, great. Let me now teach you how to live because you are a kingdom of priests. You're gonna mediate on behalf of myself in the world. You're gonna stand between me and the world. So I need to tell you and teach you how to live and how to conduct yourself so that you can represent me well in this world. And together we can partner to bring redemption and restoration to the brokenness of our world. Israel says, we're in. And then God gives them the Ten Commandments, which in essence is kind of a summary of all 613 commandments that you will find in the first five books of the Bible, known as the mitzvot for the Jewish people. These are the instructions God gave to God's people. Notice what God says in verse 8 of chapter 20, the fourth of the Ten Commandments. God says this, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. Now the word foreigner here is the Hebrew word ger. Let me hear you say ger. Ger is a Hebrew word that can be translated a number of ways, all faithful to the biblical text. It can be translated as foreigner, but also sojourner, stranger, alien, or refugee. God begins talking to Israel about refugees in their midst. And God is just starting to get warmed up with this. Notice with me in Exodus chapter 22. Exodus chapter 22, God, or excuse me, yeah, 22. God is going to bring up this theme again. In Exodus 20, that's the first time God will speak to Israel about refugees, about foreigners, about displaced people in their midst following the Exodus, the first time God's going to address this. Let me show you the next two times in the text where God addresses this. In Exodus 22, verse 21, God says this, do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. So in Exodus 20, God goes, treat them well. In 21, God goes, or excuse me, in 22, God says, hey, don't mistreat them. Don't oppress them. Because by the way, you were a refugee in Egypt. You were a foreigner in Egypt. And then in the very next chapter, Exodus 23, notice with me verse 9, God says this, Do not oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be a foreigner because you were foreigners in Egypt. God goes, this is your story. 
you know what it's like to be displaced. You, you know what it's like to be a refugee. Don't, don't oppress someone else who's displaced in the midst of your community. And then over and over and over again, God's going to remind them of this. Commandment after commandment after commandment in Leviticus, in Numbers, and then in many ways, it hits a climactic moment in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Come there with me, please. This is Moses reminding the Israelites of God's commandments one last time before he's going to die and leadership is going to be passed from Moses to Joshua. God is speaking through his prophet Moses in chapter 10 of Deuteronomy. Notice with me beginning in verse 16. This is what Moses writes on behalf of God. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner. Loves the sojourner, loves the refugee residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. God says, I love these people and I'm caring for them. I'm providing for them. And I want you to do the same because we're in partnership together. We are working together for the restoration of all things. And these people are displaced. They're refugees. They're foreigners. And I want you to come alongside of them. And I want you to love them well. Now, here's what's interesting to me. Not only does God say this, but this whole conversation we've been in for the last five minutes is that as soon as God brings Israel out of Egypt and they come to Sinai, God immediately starts talking about foreigners within their midst. To which you have to ask the question, who in the world are these gares among them? Who is God talking about? Notice this amazing passage in Exodus chapter 12, 37 to 38. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot. There were about 600,000 men on foot beside women and children. Many other people went up with them and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. Ramses and Sukkot are still in Egypt proper when this passage is talked about. When it says that many other people went up with them, guess who went with the Israelites when they left Egypt? Egyptians who saw the hand of God. Now, I would imagine that there were probably other people that the Egyptians had oppressed and mistreated that were slaves that went along with the Israelites from other ethnic backgrounds. But the understanding is, is that there was a significant number of Egyptians who probably didn't like the dictatorship going on in Egypt, did not affirm what the, people, what the Egyptians were doing to the Israelites. But nonetheless, you are an Israelite who has been enslaved by the Egyptians for 400 years and you get out in the desert and you turn around and you see Egyptians standing right there. What's your first thought? What in the world is going on? It's suspicion. It's mistrust, it's judgment, right? They're, they're guilty by association. And yet God's response is, love them. See, sadly, the broken human response 
when engaging or encountering or having a discussion about refugees in your midst, foreigners, displaced people, strangers, is generally one of suspicion, mistrust, and judgment. And yet God says, you love them. You love them. Okay, so how do they do that? How does an Israelite in that moment not have misjudgment or have judgment or suspicion or mistrust, but how do they have love? I think it's all centered around this idea because over and over and over again, God keeps reminding Israel, you were slaves in Egypt. What God is saying is that see your story in another's. And when you can see your story in another's, you will respond in greater empathy. Find your story in their story. And God keeps reminding them, by the way, that is your story. That's the foundation of everything I've done for you is in the midst of a refugee reality. Now, the key in this response is in fact empathy. Now, if I asked all of you to define empathy, I would imagine we'd probably get a thousand different definitions. Because empathy is often confused with sympathy, and I would imagine many of you would give me a definition that was closer to sympathy than actually what empathy is because they're not the same. They're very, very different. Let me help you understand the difference. Sympathy basically looks on a person's situation and says, oh, I'm sorry this is happening to you. But you don't necessarily feel what that other person is feeling. Empathy is looking upon someone's circumstance and situation and saying, I truly want to understand what you are going through. See, sympathy in a crass way basically says, ah, it kind of stinks to be you. Empathy says, I want to understand your side as much as possible. Uh, One of the best researchers of our present day that's well known, who's done a ton of work in empathy, is a gal by the name of Dr. Brene Brown. Maybe some of you know Brene Brown. She's done some amazing work, um, has one of the most well-watched TED Talks, uh, 22 million views as of this week for her first TED Talk. She's got a number of bestsellers. She does a ton of work on, on shame and guilt and empathy and community. And when it comes to empathy, this is how Dr. Brene Brown defines this word. She says, empathy is feeling with people. It's doing whatever you can to try to understand things from their perspective. Uh, how many of you are familiar with uh, nonviolent communication, a communication strategy? Raise your hand if you know anything about NVC, okay? A number of you do. Um, one of the things that I do when I do marriage counseling is I spend a good amount of time with a couple that I'm counseling on Communication. I think 95% of a marriage is communication. If you can get communication right, you get 95% of your marriage correct. Okay? Well, the way that communication breaks down is there's generally tension, there's a problem, there's an issue, and oftentimes we don't know how to respond well or to have a communication around a problem. And so sometimes they get heated, we use words we don't want, it can be very violent. And so they came up with a strategy called nonviolent communication, which has this entire grounding in empathetic listening. It's all based on empathy. And this is how it works. If I am the one who's having a conversation, let's say with my wife, who feels like something has happened and she wants to share with me either what I've did or what the problem is in the midst of this, in order for me to empathetically listen to her, the very first thing that I have to do is suspend my judgment of her. To suspend any judgment, 
Why does she feel this way? You shouldn't feel that way. It didn't really happen that way. In this moment, when you're on this side, perception is reality. What you feel is reality. And so the understanding is, is that if you're going to empathetically listen to someone else, I have to suspend all judgment of whatever I did and just simply listen to what is going on on her side and do my best to get into her shoes and basically see it from her perspective. This is what God is calling the Israelites to do. Suspend all judgment, and then God takes it a step further and says, oh, by the way, when you hear their story, when you recognize their story, do your best to see your story. Where does your story connect to that? Where have you experienced what they're experiencing? Because if you see your story in their story, you will respond to them in greater empathy. And God says, I want your response to someone who is displaced, to a stranger in your midst, to a foreigner, to a refugee, not to be one of suspicion, mistrust, and judgment. I want it to be about empathy, action, and love because that is where the redemptive moments are going to surface. This is what God is calling Israel to do, that we need to embrace our heritage in order to see what someone else is going through. Now, when you have a conversation like this, and you talk about when you see yourself in another story, you respond with greater empathy, and we talk about refugees, things do run to the refugee reality that we have right now in West Michigan. Not just the world, but here in West Michigan. And let me just say a couple things about this that I, I hope will be helpful to you because um, as Craig and I have been talking through this series and been talking through this teaching, we feel like what we are presenting today is a biblical perspective, that this is what God's heart is. But when you talk about refugees, USA Today reminded us last week, this is much bigger than just Syrians. The refugee crisis that is happening in our world is the worst humanitarian crisis since World War II. It is much bigger than just what's going on in Syria, although Syria has been on the map as of late. I mean, over 300,000 people have died. When I was there in May with my group that we were leading in Israel, I remember us driving up through the Golan Heights. We're sitting at a high elevation. And from the bus, as we're going along the border between Israel and Syria, we are looking down, watching the civil war happening five miles away. We can see the bombs going off. We can hear the gunshots. We're watching it from five miles away. And it becomes really real. And so many people have lost their lives. Millions and millions of people are refugees in the midst of all of this. But understand what we have in West Michigan is much bigger than just Syrians. It's a whole host of refugees. Now, it's been very interesting hearing the uh, quote-unquote Christian response in the midst of the refugees that are among us. Because what happens oftentimes in Western civilization like America is that we react first and foremost out of fear and safety. That's oftentimes our first response, is we have fear because we desire safety first and foremost. Whereas what we should say is what is God's will for us to respond in the midst of this situation? Because if you're trying to go the safety route, let me just already tell you, please don't worry about following Jesus. Because he set a really bad example of what it means to be in the center of God's will. Because the center of God's will for Jesus took him to a cross. That's what God's desire was for him, to sacrifice on behalf of many. It wasn't safe. It wasn't without fear. 
And God said, this is my will. So, but that's how we often respond. But I do hear the point where people say, hey, well, we need to have some discernment as to what's going on. Yeah, you're, you're right. Let me, let me help you understand what process is already in place before these refugees hit West Michigan, okay? They actually have to go through 13 different levels of vetting before they end up in West Michigan. Let me just give you six of them. It begins with the United Nations. The United Nations goes through their entire vetting process. If they make it through that vetting process, they enter into the vetting process of the United States. And within the United States, here are the five main ones that I want you to be aware of. They have to go through the National Counterterrorism Center. They're vetted by the Terrorist Screening Center, by the Department of Defense, by the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and by the Department of Homeland Security. 13 levels, these are six of them, before they get here. Now, understand something. Craig put out a, a newsletter, maybe many of you got that email last night, maybe you read it this morning, where he just made a really helpful statement. He said, we're not asking for more refugees to be brought to West Michigan. We are not conceited enough to think that we have that kind of influence. But friends, here is the reality. There are refugees and they are in West Michigan. And I think God's question is to the church, what are you going to do in the midst of this reality? And by the way, if you haven't embraced your heritage, you're probably not gonna understand what the Christian biblical response is going to be. Because God's response, God's desire for us to respond is one of love and one of empathy. And by the way, don't get caught in this whole one bad apple spoils the whole bunch that of the millions and millions and millions of refugees, let's just go Syrians right now, one may have been involved in what happened in Paris. That doesn't make every Syrian refugee or every refugee a terrorist. I mean, the pastor that was caught embezzling down south recently, um, don't, don't, don't apply that story to me or Craig. We, we, we don't all embezzle. Just because another pastor in another part of a country doesn't mean we're all like that. So be mature in your approach of recognizing that one bad apple doesn't spoil the whole bunch, that we believe that the biblical response, not, not the suggestion, but the biblical mandate in all of this is that God says, if you find refugees, if you find foreigners, if you find displaced people within your midst, I want you to love them and I want you to take care of them, help take care of their needs and do for them what God says I do for these kinds of people all the time. That is the Christian response. And here at Central, we are going to be unapologetic about our response to doing what God is asking us to do to align ourselves with the very heart of God because people are in need and the church needs to step up and help those who find themselves displaced. That is our stance. And that's not just our stance. We believe that's the heart of God, that that is what God is calling the church to do. So what is Central doing? Well, several weeks ago, Micah gave an announcement talking specifically about the Syrian refugee families. And we're aware that Governor Snyder shut things down for the time being. There's still families here. They've been vetted. They need help. So what we did is we challenged you during Water's Edge Sunday that if any of you could help with housing or in any way. In fact, we didn't even, Mike, we didn't even give any specifics. We just said, can you help in any way? And it was amazing. We had over 40 families, the last count, it might even be up past 50 now, who went there and said, hey, I can help with housing. I can help with this. I can help with that. And it was like all of the things that these people needed. You stepped up and said, we're in. How can I help? And it was 
awesome. And then on Thursday at our Thanksgiving offering, we shared with you that a generous anonymous businessman here in West Michigan said, I will put up matching funds up to $350,000 for West Michigan churches who give funds to Bethany Christian Services who are dealing directly with the refugees, not just Syrians, but all the refugees that are here in West Michigan that are responsible for. They said, I will put up 350,000 matching funds. So we said, okay, we want to at least do our part here in West Michigan. So we said, we want to raise 15,000, which then becomes 30,000. And then we said, if we raise anything above that, it'll go into our benevolence fund and that will be used 100% to help people who have needs connected to our ministry here at Central. And a number of you have responded in that way. And by the way, you can continue to do that through the end of December. You can just mark a gift, designate it Thanksgiving offering, and it will be applied to that. But this is how Central is responding to the crisis within our midst, just a couple of very tangible ways. Now, we also want to be cognizant of the fact that in the midst of a series like Refugee, that we're not spending the entire series just talking about refugees in our midst. We don't want to discredit what people are going through. But in the same token, on the other side, we also don't want to discredit the refugee status, the refugee reality that many of us experience right here in West Michigan, and you're from West Michigan. You feel it in a number of different ways. And it's happening all around us, this idea of a refugee reality. And so, so when we talk about that, when you see your story in others, you respond with greater empathy, we want to see our story in those around us who may be having a difficult time, who may feel displaced, who may feel like they're a long way from home. And so here's part of the way that we wanted to, to bring this to our kids. So for those of you kids, many of you, this should look really familiar to you. Okay, how many of you kids have been coloring this page throughout the service? Let me see your hands nice and tall. Okay, good. A whole mess of you have been coloring. And by the way, you kiddos are doing an absolutely amazing job in this service. I mean, I'm blown away. Absolutely amazing. Thank you for being such great listeners. And I don't know how much of this teaching you've been able to grasp or how much you've been staying with. Um, but let's help you understand on your uh, coloring page what we've actually been talking about today. You'll notice in the upper left-hand corner, we have these people from all walks of life. They're from different countries, different nationalities, different ethnic backgrounds. And you have been coloring them, and you see that there's a maze that has been taking them. You've been trying to take them to the Christmas house. Here's what we've been asking you to do with this coloring is to recognize that sometimes people feel a long way from home. That people generally feel most comfortable when they're in their home. In fact, let me help you kiddos understand this. How many of you kids started a new school this year? You started at a different school. Okay, you did? Raise your hand. You did? You did? Good, you did? Okay, we've got kids all over here who started at different schools. How many of you, you didn't change schools, but you're in a different building than you were last year? You went into a new building this year. Okay, you did? Good, you guys did? Good, yep, you up there, gotcha. Okay, a number of you. Go back to day one of this year, whether you're at a new school or at your new building. How did you feel in that moment? Like that first day walking into school, how did you feel? You probably felt a little bit uneasy. Maybe some of you are a bit scared. 
Maybe some of you are like, I don't wanna go there and maybe mom or dad had to walk you in. That is a feeling that we call of someone feeling displaced. You are uncomfortable. And kids, what we've been challenging your parents and the rest of us in here today is how can we in our lives come to people who feel far from home and how can we walk them through the maze? How can we take them to a place of feeling like they're at home? And kids, you have that opportunity when you engage with other kids who feel displaced, who feel uneasy. Is that part of remembering your own story is to remember those moments when you felt like that and how can you come alongside of a kid who may show up in school after Christmas break who just started at your school in January? Or a kid that recently moved that still doesn't feel at home or someone who's just kind of off by themselves. How can you come alongside and serve them? Because kids, we know that you understand how to help other people. I was reminded of this just this last week. One of my good friends has a son whom they adopted. And they went to a restaurant and their son saw that this restaurant was raising funds for foster care children. And the boy's immediate response to his parents were, can I have money we need to give to that? And they said, well, why do you want to give to that? And he said, because I know what it's like to not have a home. And those kids need a home. And if we can help, we should. That, <laughs> that is the story right there. He saw his story in someone else's. And immediately he was able to empathize and he said, and I want to act and I want to respond. For our kids and for us, really what this is, is how do we help people navigate through the maze of feeling like they're displaced? How do we get them to a place of feeling like home? Because just understand something, that family that recently moved into your neighborhood, they feel displaced. That person who just started at your place of work, they feel displaced. Your spouse who is wrestling with something that has been really difficult, they're feeling displaced. That friend or that family that recently lost a loved one, they feel displaced. And probably more so than at any other time of the year, it is during the holidays, Thanksgiving to Christmas, where people can feel the most displaced. How can we respond to them in empathy? Well, friends, we have to be willing to embrace our own story, to recognize that what God has done for us in our heritage is what God is asking us to do for others. And in the event that you're struggling with this in any way, in the event that you're going, I'm not really connecting to the whole Israelite story. Now, let me just remind you of what Paul reminds us of lots of times in the New Testament. Notice this passage from 1 Corinthians 1.21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, uses the word alienated. We were refugees because of sin. We were far from God because of sin. Notice how Paul puts it in Ephesians 2.12. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Paul says, 
We've all experienced a refugee reality. It was our sin that took us far from God. But the good news of the gospel is that God snagged us in our refugee reality and God brought us home. God gave us a home and a family that if as a follower of Jesus, we've been adopted into the family of God. And what's more, when we talk about this idea that when you see your story in another, you respond with greater empathy, what is the story of Jesus becoming man? The eternal son takes on flesh and blood, becomes Jesus, and walks among us. Hebrews tells us he now understands us because he became one of us. The epitome of seeing yourself in another to be able to respond in greater empathy is Jesus walking this earth to give us a home, to eliminate our refugee reality, but he became that in order to experience everything we experience so that he can empathize where we find ourselves in life. And Jesus' desire is that his example would be our experience, that we would respond to others with the very heart of God that God has for people who are displaced because that is our heritage, friends. That is our story. And if we're going to live into this reality well, we have to be willing to embrace our biblical heritage. And so this is what I pray happens. I pray that this messes with you. I pray that you wrestle with this. I pray that you just go, dear God, what does this mean? What does this look like? Who are those people within my midst? And then for the remainder of the series, Craig and I will be continuing to teach through this series through December 19 and 20. We're going to talk about all of the other facets connected to a refugee reality because we can feel like refugees in our finances. We can feel that where we're at with our jobs, with our families, with our friends. There's lots of different ways we experience it. And by the way, the whole Christmas story begins, Jesus flees as a refugee with his parents. The whole story is a refugee And we're looking forward to exploring that more in the weeks to come. Friends, embrace your story. See your story in others. And you'll be able to respond in greater empathy. Let's pray. God, we are thankful that this morning that we got together as a community. A community of young, a community of old an intergenerational experience that reminds us that, God, your gospel and your story is alive and well in our world. We are thankful for the chance to be reminded this morning that we're all in this together from all walks of life and from all age groups. And God, we're also grateful that this morning we've been challenged with a word from your text that God, our heritage as followers of you is grounded in a refugee reality. God, may we embrace our heritage. May we embrace our story so that we can respond to others when we see them in need, that we would respond in greater empathy. And God, we thank you that Jesus, you came in flesh to experience this human life so that you can empathize with us as well. Help us in our struggles, help us in our questions, help us in our fears, help us in our safeties, help us to respond to whatever we find ourselves in in a way that would be close to the very heart of God. For this we pray in the strong, powerful name of Jesus. And everybody said?
Amen. Amen. Kiddos, again, thank you so much for being here this morning. Thank you for singing. Thank you for dancing. Thank you for lighting up our lives today. We so greatly appreciate it. Also, for those of you who are guests, so grateful that you are here. If you'd like to connect, we'd love to be able to connect with you. You can go out to the doors and next to the information desk is a welcome area. And then also we're going to have people up front wearing orange tags. If you would like prayer, if you'd like to talk with somebody, we'd love to be able to do that. And why don't you stand and let's just close in a quick word of blessing. And you can enjoy the rest of your Sunday and your Thanksgiving weekend. My friends and family here at Central Wesleyan Church, I am proud that I get to call this place home because this is a phenomenal community who sees the heart of God and responds. May you continue to do that. May you embrace your heritage. May you embrace your story. And may you respond in great empathy, love, and action to those who need to experience God through you this week. Grace and peace be with all of you. We look forward to seeing you next week. Take care.